Amen. Hey, I appreciate Will being with us again tonight. As I said last week, uh, Will is a dear friend of mine. We uh, grew up at the same church together, and so it's always an honor when we get to share uh, the stage. Uh, he's from Athens, Alabama. So if anybody's from North Alabama, you have a friend up on the stage. I'm also from North Alabama as well. Hey, if you hey, thank you, thank you. I appreciate that one cheer. Um, hey, if you have a Bible, open it to First Thessalonians chapter two tonight. We're going to wrap up a series that we've been calling "Welcome to the Family." Welcome to the family. Um, and uh, we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're kind of kind of walking through this book uh, slowly tonight. We're really focusing on one verse, and uh, uh, I'm excited to do that. Well, hey, as you find 1 Thessalonians, uh, to much dismay or to the surprise of many, I was actually in the honors program during my time in college. And so uh, being in the, in the honors program, we went on a lot of college field trips. We went to these museums, and we'd go to art museums around the state and in some other states. And um, uh, I would rather watch paint dry at the time than go into some of these museums because I, I, I just didn't really get it. I wasn't really into museums. If you love museums, that's awesome. But for me at the time, I was just not really a museum guy. Uh, but now that I think back on, on these, these museums that I went to, I, I feel like I probably missed out on a lot now that I'm a little bit older. And I've come to realize specifically about art uh, is that art reflects society. And I'm not just talking about drawings and paintings, but really what anything that we would call art, it reflects society. So that we could look at art from 500 years ago and we would see the society that existed because the artist would, would paint that or would construct that. We see that in buildings and the way that they're designed. Hang with me for a moment, though, because I'm going somewhere with this. In the, in the 1900s, we see that there were really kind of two eras. We had the modern era, and then once we got to the 1950s, we kind of began to transition to the postmodern era. And it's interesting that art is, is reflected in this. So modern art, if you will... And this is what someone said about it, that art had become too concerned with irrelevant sophistications and conventions that detracted from the main purpose of art, the discovery of truth. So in the early 1900s, artists began to paint things and they were, they were looking for truth. They wanted to know it and they wanted to reveal it. But then as the 50s came and the 60s and the 70s, the era began to change and we really entered an era that we would call the postmodern era. And some people would characterize the postmodern era, especially in, in regards to art. Somebody wrote this, that there was little to unite postmodern art other than the idea that anything goes. So it's interesting that from the modern era to the postmodern era, you had a group of people, even artists, who wanted to reveal truth and pursue it. But eventually, now that we have entered into the postmodern era, we have, we've left truth. We've left searching for it. And, and really, we live in a society that says anything goes. If you look at art in a general, in a general sense, you'll actually see that. You'll see that in the postmodern era that we live in, that there are artists that don't follow the conventional rules. They make up the rules that they want to make to reveal what they want to reveal. Now, this is fine in regards to art, but as I said a minute ago, art reflects society. And because we're in a postmodern society, we recognize that in our current society as a whole, we have actually thrown the rules out the door from a moral standpoint, from a truth standpoint. 
Absolutes that once existed, they no longer do. And this is fairly common knowledge uh, in the Christian or non-Christian realm. If you delve into philosophy and you'll see people begin to look at uh, what is absolute, what is not absolute, we are now in a society that would suggest that truth does not exist. Or if it does exist, we can't know it. That's in essence what postmodernism is. So our society would say to me, Madison, you can have truth, but it's not going to be that person's truth. They'll have their own truth. In fact, we could all have our own truth. We could have a hundred different truths. That's what our our society would suggest. Um, Don't try to go to your professor, though, or to your boss and say, hey, here's actually the right answer. You said this was the right answer. This this is my truth, because it doesn't work in regards to some of those situations. But the reason why I bring this up is because I truly believe with all my heart that society is wrong. And I'm saying society, I'm really talking about the American, the, the American culture, our society. Uh, different people believe different things throughout, throughout the world. But I believe that even though we're in a postmodern era where people would suggest we can't know truth, I, I believe with all my heart that we can. I believe we sang about it a minute ago. I, I don't believe that this is just my truth. I believe that it's the truth. And my hope and prayer tonight, as we talk about some things that probably maybe some of you have never heard of, um, as we talk about these things, I hope that you will begin to think about what is truth. And hopefully when you walk out the door, although you may not have answered the question completely, I hope that I've given you some things to talk about, maybe to talk with some friends about, maybe to talk with me about. We've been walking through some things that as a faith family that we believe, and tonight um, I want to present to you a commitment that we embrace at least I'm hoping that we embrace this. And here's the, here's the commitment. The Bible, that is God's word, is our final authority in life. It's our final authority. In saying that, it's also what I would say absolute truth. In short, this means that nothing that contradicts the Bible can stand. Now, if you disagree with that, just hang tight. Let, let, me, let me continue to talk. Um, What this would suggest is that as I'm reading the Bible and if I see something in society that disagrees with that, I'm going to go with the Bible. I'm not going to go with the masses. At your workplace, it's interesting how ideas spread. Uh, If you work with people that like to work out, you find yourself maybe getting interested in working out. Uh, or, or if you are around a bunch of people that love Krispy Kreme donuts, you're probably going to start eating Krispy Kreme donuts. Ideas spread. And if we're honest, our society has all these ideas that are spreading. And if we're, if we're not careful, we will get caught up in the, con- in the current of where society is going and how society is thinking. And it's interesting, our current society believes very different than 100 years ago, and 100 years before that, and 100 years before that. And so the question is, what is truth? Where do we find it? I believe it's in the Bible. And so I must hold all issues of life up to the Bible and say, what does the Bible say about this? Marriage. What's the Bible say about that? Do I define what marriage is? Do you define what it is? Can anybody say what marriage is, or do I let the Bible determine that? Issues such as homosexuality. What's the Bible have to say? What's the Bible have to say about relationships, morality, finances, justice, human life, science, parenting? The list could go on and on and on. 
what I have to do, because I believe that, th that this is absolute truth, God's word, is I have to go to it and I have to ask God, God, how should I address this issue? Not how does that popular person on YouTube address the issue? Not how does the smartest professor at UAB or, or wherever you may be, or not, do, not what does my boss think about it, or not even what do I think about it deep down inside? Because I'm messed up, and I think you guys are too. So we have to find something outside of ourselves, and that is God's word, to guide us into truth. And so it's some heavy stuff, but let's go to God's word, and we're going to scratch the surface, and that's literally all we're going to do because we could talk about this stuff for a long time. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. I'll read the whole passage, but then we're really going to focus in on verse 13. So Paul is writing. He's reminiscing a time that he was with a group of people in Thessalonica. Here's what he says. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. Verse 14, for you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have per persecuted us. And they do not please God and are contrary to all men. Verse 16, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as also to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Would you pray with me before we dive in? Lord, we thank you for your word. And um, Lord, I know that with a lot of us here tonight, we have a lot of questions. There's probably a lot of confusion. We've heard hundreds of ideas in our life. We hear many of them where we work, where we go to school, the people that we're around. We read about them. But God, we need to hear what is true. And I pray that you would reveal that truth to us tonight. And so would you lead us and guide us, guide our hearts and, and our minds. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to move forward tonight, but, but here's what I want to say. Um, we're going to take God's word at his word. And, uh, and some of you may have a lot of questions about some of the things that I say, and you may want some other arguments, if you will, so some, uh, some other ideas. But what I want us to first do is I want us to address this idea of, is God's word truth? And I want us to see what God's word has to say about it. And then we'll look at some, some external things as well that would, uh, that would point us in that direction as well. And I'll just say this, if something is confusing, just write it down, put it in your phone, come talk to me after. We can set up a time, we can meet later on. I'm happy, I love to do that. And so if I say anything that either rubs you the wrong way, uh, let's talk about it. Or if something is confusing, we can do that as well. Um, so let's move forward. Verse 13 of this passage, this is where we're going to focus. So let me, let me go back to it. Paul writes, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing. Now to remind you, Paul was a missionary, a church planner. He didn't always believe the, the way he believes as he writes this. But he, he visits a group in Greece, a place called Thessalonica. And he, he teaches the Bible and their lives were radically changed. And, and he's, he's reminiscing on his time with them. But he says, for this reason, we also thank God without ceasing. So there's something in Paul's life that he continually thinks about and he continually celebrates. I don't know if you've had a moment like that. Maybe there's something this week that, that was just so good that you've been going back and saying, God, thank you for that. Maybe you passed a test that you thought you were going to fail. Maybe you got a promotion or girls, maybe that dude finally asked you on a date. 
He saw enough hair flips, whatever it was. And he finally took the courage. He, he, he understood the signs. And now you're just thanking God. Thank you. Thank you. Paul is just thanking God. He is excited. Well, why is he excited? Well, let's keep looking. He's, he's excited and he's celebrating. He's continually thanking God because, as he says, because you received the word of God, which you heard from us. So that's what he teach. He didn't teach his own ideas. We live in a world where everybody wants to share their ideas. Let me just say, everything I'm saying tonight, it's not my idea. I, I, these are not my ideas. I really just want to say, hey, here's, here's what the Bible says. We live in a world that says, listen to me. I'm saying, don't listen to me. Let's, let's listen to the Bible. And this is what Paul did. He preached the word. He says, he celebrated because you received the word of God, which you heard from us. You welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. So Paul is thankful that when he went to Thessalonica and opened up the scriptures and began to teach, and when he began to talk about Jesus, that this group of people did not receive it as man's word. It wasn't just an idea. It wasn't just an opinion. They received it as it was the very words of God. They received it as if it was absolute truth. And so uh, what I want us to do is I want us to see two truths that we see in this verse. And although Paul doesn't explain why the scriptures are absolute truth, I believe that if we go on a biblical field trip, we'll see in some other passages why we can conclude that. So truth number one, God's word is truth. If you're taking notes, you can write that down. Truth number one, God's word is truth. So according to the verse that we just read, again, not my idea, we saw it very clearly. God's word is truth. Now, first, what I want us to do is we're going to flip around. We're going to look at some different passages, and I want us to look at the production of God's word. You may be sitting here saying, man, how do we even get the Bible? Maybe you grew up in church and, and somebody said you need to believe this, and so you believed it, but you don't really know how we got the Bible. Maybe church uh, gatherings like this are, are new to you and, and somebody has a Bible and you're thinking, what in the world, like, where, where did that come from? Did somebody just find it in a hole somewhere? Well, let's see what the Bible has to say. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, such an important passage for every believer to know. Uh, I'd encourage you, if you're somebody that likes to memorize scripture, memorize 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. I just want to read the first part of verse 16. It says, all scripture, meaning the Bible. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. So first off, God's word is inspired. Inspired. Now this is not the kind of inspired where if I had a canvas here and I just felt inspired to do a self-portrait. It's not that kind of inspired. Some translations, yours may say that all scripture is God-breathed. It's the same idea. That is that the very words that we read on the page or that you have on your tablet, your phone, whatever it, whatever it be, God's word is inspired, meaning that he is the originator, that it originated with him. It was God's, it, it was God breathed. It was not men thinking up, well, how can we come up with, with some crazy stories and tie them all together? No, uh, we see that God is the source. He is the ultimate author. 
Now, by this, we would say that, that he, he is the ultimate author, but we also understand that he used men to write. He spoke to them. If we look at the Bible, we see that there were over 40 authors over the span of 1,500 years that the Bible was confirmed. Composed. Now, whether you believe in the Bible or not, uh, that's just history. That it took 1,500 years for it to be composed, 40-plus authors. But, but here's what's crazy. It all meshes perfectly. And I, being somebody that has the opportunity to study the Bible on a regular basis, and many of you that, that get to do that as well, we understand that it does not contradict itself. It does not. It does not contradict itself in any particular place. And those who would say that it does don't understand what is being said. It's just as if you were to take a textbook in one of your classes and go to your professor and say, you're wrong, the textbook says this. And then they say, hey, read the next page. And then you read it and you're like, oh, my bad. A, a lot of people would say that the Bible contradicts itself because they, they don't understand what's going on inside of the Bible. And this is what we see, uh, that God is the originator and he spoke to men. Now look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, or you can jot this down. Uh, Peter, an apostle, a follower of Jesus, somebody that walked with Jesus, he says, prophecy never came by the will of man. Again, we're taking the Bible at its word. Peter says, hey, guys didn't just speak on their own authority. It wasn't on their own will, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And so God being the ultimate author through his spirit spoke to people and they began to write. They began to record. And we see multiple examples of this. Uh, I'll just name a few. You don't have to turn there. You can jot these down if you want. Exodus chapter 4, verses 10 through 12. Uh, we see where God is talking to Moses. And he says, I'll be your mouth. And I'll teach you what you shall speak. And then several pages later, we get to see what God spoke to him about. Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Uh, I'm reading in Jeremiah in, in my own time daily right now. But God says this to a young man, Jeremiah. He calls him out to be a prophet and he says, Behold, I've put my words in your mouth. And let me just say this. If you read the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah's message was not received by anyone. Not a single person. He went preaching, 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 and everybody hated him. Why would he do that on his own? Well, God was the one that put his words in Jeremiah's mouth. And Jeremiah just said, yes, sir, I'm going to do what you call me to do. And we see that that's what God did. Jonah chapter 3, verse 1, God says this to, to Jonah, call out against the, the Ninevites, call out against it. This is a nation, Nineveh, the message that I tell you. The message that I tell you, Matthew chapter 10, verses 19 through 20, Jesus says, For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Over and over and over and over and over again, we see in Scripture that Scripture would claim that God speaks to people and that they would write things down, that they would record it. We can see this all over. We see it, the, we see it in the Old Testament. Thus says the Lord, and the prophet would record what God had spoken. And so God's word is inspired. It was not man's idea. Honestly, man is not smart enough to come up with a book as intricate as this and as incredible as this. It wasn't man's idea. And because it was originated by God and because men simply wrote as they were moved by the spirit, being guided by God, we can embrace that the Bible is what I would say infallible infallible. So God's word not only is um, 
inspired, but it is infallible and inerrant. In other words, God's word will not fall, meaning it, if, if it suggests something, if it promises something, it will come to fruition. And in the same breath, it has no error. It is inerrant. It is without error, meaning look through there and find an error and come to me and tell me, Madison, this was an error and you won't find one. And that's the beauty of scripture, 40 plus authors, 1500 years, God orchestrating it, inerrant, infallible. Listen to what the Bible has to say about the Bible. Again, we're letting God's words speak on behalf of God. Psalm chapter 12, verse six, the words of the Lord are pure words, pure. They're not defiled. Uh, again, uh, none of us in this room are pure. We've not had a pure day today. There's probably been some things that have run through your mind, things that you've done this week, whatever it may be, but God's word is pure. It's pure, absolute pure. Psalm chapter 19, verse seven and eight says, the law of the Lord is perfect. It's perfect. It's flawless, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Well, it can only be sure if it's absolute truth. Making wise the simple, the statutes of the Lord are right, meaning they're not wrong. So if they're right, are they 99%, 98%? Because if it's 98% right, it's not right. It is right. Rejoicing the heart, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Psalm 119 verse 89 says, forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. So forever, it's settled, it's sure, it's pure. Matthew chapter 24, verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words, this is Jesus speaking, my words will by no means pass away. First Peter chapter two, verse two, Peter, he looks at a group of Christians and he says, listen, you need to be like a baby and you need to desire the pure milk of the word. He said it was pure. Why? Because it is. It has no flaw. It has no issue. And then Jesus says in John chapter 17, verse 17, your word is truth. I guess we could have said that one at the beginning. You see, God's word is truth. If it's truth, then it can't be false. If it's not false, it's infallible. It has no error. So according to the Bible, the Bible suggests that it's infallible, it's inerrant. However, I, I, I want us to look a little bit at the history of, of how we got the Bible. And so again, internally, the Bible would suggest that it's true. But let's look at um, let's look at some external things. So we've already said that because God's word is inspired, that men wrote down as they were compelled and moved by the Holy Spirit. However, the oldest book of the Bible was written over 3,500 years ago. It's a long time. And I've already said that it's 1,500 years in, in making. So that means that the, that the newest book of the Bible would be roughly 2,000 years old. Or original languages included Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And those were the texts of the original language or the, the, the language of the original text. And so how did the message make us all the way to us? Which praise God it did. Praise God that I can open up the word and read it in English. Well, men copied it down and other people made copies of those copies. And this process continued over and over. And, and mind you, if you look at history, people died for that. People lost their lives trying to copy down. Well, if this book is false, why would somebody spend their entire life trying to get it into somebody's language so that they can read truth? Why would somebody die for that? Why would somebody die for a myth, for a fallacy? People lost their lives. We also have nations that have tried to get rid of the word. 
Why would they do that? If it's false, just say it is. Say, go buy you a copy and look for yourself. But no, we've tried to expel it. We've tried to remove it. It's interesting. But some people would say, well, in those copies of copies of copies of copies, that, well, of course there's error. It's kind of like that game, and, and people will use that. Again, if I, if I spoke a phrase to one of you and, then you, and then you leaned over and said the phrase in somebody's ear, and you, and you repeated that process, most likely that phrase is going to change. And, that, and that's, that's the logic that some people would say, well, because it's copies of copies of copies, then we lost something. The problem is, is that history says otherwise. And not to bore you, but let me just throw some things your way. So the copyists were extremely systematic in their practice. So if we go back hundreds of years ago, um, even, even thousands of years ago, they would go so far to keep a tally of the words and the letters on each row, making sure that nothing changed. Each column was allotted a certain number of letters and words. They were extremely meticulous. Uh, in the Old Testament, as they're copying this, when they would come to the, the word for Lord, uh, that is Yahweh, they would get a different pen and they would write that out. And if at any point there was ever an issue in the copy that they were working on, they would completely destroy it. Absolutely meticulous in this process. Now, here's what's interesting. Now, if you like history, hang on. If you don't, well, hang on if you don't like history. If you like history, this is interesting. But before 1947, the oldest copy of the Old Testament scriptures that we had was from around maybe the 8th century. 86, 600, 8700. That, that, was, that was the oldest. This was before 1947. Uh, but in 1946, 1947, there was a discovery that was made. There was, there was some ancient texts that were discovered. This is known as the Dead Sea Scrolls, a discovery that was made. And what was so interesting is that in this cave, there were texts that, that, that were found. And some of these ancient texts included the Old Testament. And some of these portions of the Old Testament were 800 years older than the oldest copy that we had in 1947 or 46. And so if you wanted to see if any changes had happened over the course of those 800 years, all you had to do was compare them. And so that's what they did. They took the really, really old ones, and then they took the newest ones, which are still pretty old, and they compared them. Guess what they found? They're the same. They're the same. And so that may bore you, but I'm just trying to say that history, the external evidence of the Bible, would suggest that the Bible had not been changed. Now, if there were changes, they were obvious. Misspelling of a word, leaving out a conjunction, things like that. And that's the Old Testament. Now, the New Testament, listen to this. The New Testament, we have in excess of 5,600 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. And these were either written on papyrus, that is plant material, so again, old, uh, or parchments, animal skins. There are an additional 10,000 Latin copies, 8,000 other copies, different translations such as Slavic, Ethiopian, Armenian, over 23,000 over 23, handwritten copies. I don't know if you had to read Beowulf in literature class. You want to know how many copies we have of that? And we teach it in our schools. One copy. I don't know if you've ever heard uh, Homer's Iliad. You want to know how many copies we have of that? Less than 1,800. 
handwritten copies. We have 23,000 plus handwritten copies of these New Testament scriptures that, 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 that we are able to read right now. And again, that means we can compare them and we can look at them and we can see what differences there are. And some people would say, oh, well, well there's differences. Well, are they? Because if we look closely, we see that most of those differences are obvious mistakes, such as misspelled words. I don't know if, you, if you're like me. When I'm typing on my computer and I'm, my brain's moving, I realize, what, what am I trying to say? Like I'm completely left out a word here or I misspelled a word there. And so there were certain misspellings or misconjunctions, but we would see that the message is unchanged. The doctrine that it teaches, the message that it reveals is the same. And so from the internal evidence that we looked at, the different passages, and then a brief conversation of the external evidence, we could conclude that we truly do have God's word. And I haven't even gotten into, and I'm not going to, but the archaeological evidence that we see. And, and, and all these different things that, that, that we could bring up, we can also be confident not only that God's word is inspired, that it's, that it's infallible, it's inerrant, but, but it's complete. I don't know if you've ever wondered, why. well, are, are we going to add any more books to the Bible? God's word is complete. This is a conversation that deserves some more attention, but let's take a few minutes and think through this. As evangelical Christians, we only recognize 66 books comprising the Bible. That would be 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. If you're good at math, you do that quick and you come up with 66. 66 books. Um, not picking on the Catholic Church, but the Catholic Church accepts 11 or 12 additional books that we would call the Apocrypha. That, that throughout history, though, uh, the early church fathers, early believers rejected these, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. Um, well, actually, I'll say that now. Here's why, we would re here's why we would reject those. The teachings of those books contradict the teachings in the Bible. And so they just don't line up. They, they, they don't agree with what others would say. And I'm not just talking about from a moral standpoint, but they don't align in its message. Unlike other books in the Bible, the Apocrypha is never cited in the New Testament. If you read the New Testament and if you have a Bible, a study Bible, and you see all the references, and if you had one that said all of them, you would see that the New Testament writers are constantly referring to various Old Testament books, but they don't do that for the Apocrypha. So we would say that is not God's word. It's not recognized in scripture as scripture. Historically, Jews who accept the Old Testament scriptures have always rejected the Apocrypha. And it's interesting, even many Catholic scholars throughout the years historically have rejected the Apocrypha as well. So the Apocrypha is rejected. Why do we reject these books and others that would claim to be divine scripture? I had somebody one time that gave me a book called The Gospel of Thomas. And this would be a book that we would reject. Other books, uh, there are other, what we would say, false gospel books that people have written historically, but we would reject that. Why is it? Um, um, why would we reject the Book of Mormon? Why would we, why would we reject the Quran and, and all these others? Well, first off, Christians in the New Testament regarded the Old Testament as God's word. The New Testament is full of Old, Old, Old Testament quotes and inferences. And, uh, and even New Testament writers would refer to other writings in the New Testament as scripture. If you want to look this up, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18, we won't read those for the sake of time. But here are a few other conditions on why did some books make it in the Bible and some didn't. First off, the authority of the writer. 
That, that was a condition, the authority of the writer. We understand that in the New Testament, each book was either written by an apostle or somebody who knew an apostle closely. When I say apostle, I'm talking about the 12 apostles, which includes Paul. So we have the 12 disciples, but remember Judas, he betrayed Jesus. He killed himself. Somebody else was, uh, uh, was found. We have the 12 apostles. We also have Paul. So again, these guys comprise most of the writings of scripture or people who spent close time with them. And so that was a major concern. If there was somebody who had no relationship with Jesus, no connection to an apostle, of course it's going to be rejected. They don't know what they're talking about. Whereas you have these other guys who knew exactly. And you, and you can do that because there were people around who had been discipled by apostles. And so they could say, that's not true. I know a guy that walked with Jesus for, for three and a half years, and that's not true. So again, from a historical sense, we can reject those. And, and throughout the ages, that is what has happened. Uh, so the authority of the writer. Number two, the character of the book. Does it teach a message that corresponds with the rest of the Bible? And we would see that historically there were people who in trying to make a name for themselves or trying to deceive others would write a book with a pseudonym. They would use somebody else's name and they would attach it to it and they would say, this is right. And then people would begin to read and they would say, it's not right. This is not aligned with who Jesus was, what he taught. This is not aligned with the other scriptures that we hold dear. And they would reject that. And then lastly, the verdict of the church. So we, we have a bound Bible. I have a bound Bible in my hand here. Um, it, used, it used to not be so. Again, it's comprised of 66 books. And so when did we get a Bible that is composed like this? Well, formally, it would have been in the fourth century. But here's what you have to understand. Even before people formally recognized this, the church had already accepted these books as scripture. It's because God was orchestrating something supernaturally. What that means is that you could be a part of a body like this. And we have all these books that we refer to as God's word. And this could be in the second century. And then there was another church hundreds of miles away that are doing the exact same thing. And so eventually churches began to realize we are recognizing this as God's word. You're recognizing this as God's word. God is the one who is orchestrating this. And they decided to say, hey, let, let's, let's formally do this. And so at the Council of Carthage, uh, they formally did this in the fourth century. So with all that said, I believe that God's word is truth based upon its inspiration, its infallibility, its inerrancy, and that God's word is complete so that somebody cannot show up today and say, man, God spoke to me, he gave me a word, and you write it out and say, let's add it to the Bible. No, it's not true. You're not an apostle. You wouldn't walk closely with an apostle. And again, it's not going to align with this scripture. It's not going to correspond with that. And so I believe that this is true. The internal evidence, the external evidence, historically, archaeologically. If we do the research, we find that the facts are so overwhelmingly in favor of this book that we cannot neglect that. Or if we can it would be with, with, with great confusion of how could the facts be so in line with this? How could it be? Again, I believe it's because it is true. Now, if this still isn't satisfying to you, we could take another day and we could walk through hundreds, if not thousands, of, of, of prophecies in the Bible that have come to fruition. And we could go prophecy after prophecy where somebody hundreds of years earlier said God spoke and said this would happen. And then hundreds of years later, it happens over and over and over and over again. 
But I believe, again, that God's word is truth. Now, quickly, my last truth I want to offer you is going to be much shorter. And some of you are like, praise God. Truth number two, God's word transforms. God's word transforms. And so I just, I just gave you a lot of knowledge, but I don't just want to fill your minds with knowledge. Because here's what I want to do. When you begin to get in the word, and when the word gets in you, it transforms you. I, I, I hope you came to be encouraged and challenged tonight, but let me say that you can be encouraged and challenged every single day by opening up this word and asking God to speak to you and, and walking through it. And you may say, but I don't know. I don't know how to read the Bible. Then we'll pair you up with somebody. We'll, we'll get you connected with somebody that knows how to, how to read the Bible and can help teach you. God's word transforms. Look back at our verse, verse 13, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing. Paul's celebrating because when you receive the word of God, you heard it from us. You welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. No, don't miss this. Which also effectively works in you who believe. So the, the, the word of God is working in these people. They, they believed in it, they received it, and, and it's working in them. Because God's word is unlike any other book that's ever been written, because it's inspired, because it's God-breathed, it is supernatural. God's word has the power to change lives, and many of you can attest to this because you've been in a weak moment or, 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 or whatever it may be, and you read and God spoke to you, and God has altered the course of your life. Uh, For many of you, you were headed to death and destruction and God opened up your eyes and your heart through his word. And now you understand what this world is that we live in and you understand its brokenness while the world is saying, why do people act the way they do? Why are there self, uh, why are there killings and why are there injustices? We say we know why, because this book talks about it. It has all the answers. It transforms God's word is unlike any other book. And in this verse, Paul says that through believing the scripture. So you had some people that Paul met who didn't believe it. And then they believed it and it changed them. They didn't believe the message about Jesus. And then they did. And it absolutely radically changed their life. And then a bunch of people in their city began to persecute them for that. And yet they continued to believe. They continued to trust. It's interesting that throughout history, we see that people that embrace this book are persecuted. And in America, the persecution that we face is very different than what we would see in other countries. But perhaps in 20, 50, 100 years, if the Lord tarries, we will see that persecution that exists in other parts of the world comes much closer to us. But when we embrace the message of this, when we embrace the truth, we see that people don't like that. They don't like for you to say, you know what's true. They don't like that. And again, it's not my opinion. It's not your opinion. It's God's word. But that's what this group did. They embraced it. They believed it. And they were persecuted because of it. If you have a chance, read Psalm 119. Uh, Earlier this year, I I counted 84 ways that God works in a person's life through his word. It's a long chapter. So, hey, if you want a little Bible study, Go to Psalm 119 and just start documenting what God's word does in a person's life and just see how many of those that you can find. 
Hebrews chapter 4, this is the last passage that I'll I'll say. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, it says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account." God's word is living. You may see just a book here, but I promise you, I guarantee you, this book is alive and it will change your life. If you open it up, if you consider it, if you begin to read it, it will absolutely radically change your life. And all throughout the the Bible, we see that humanity is broken and filled with sin. And this book has the answer. Scientists don't have the answer. Philosophers don't have the answer. God's word is the answer. He has revealed it there. And we see that we have an issue. If you look in our world, whether you believe this book or not, you can agree that there are some issues in our world. And the Bible addresses that. And the issue is that you are broken and I am broken. I'm messed up. I am not perfect. You're not perfect. We're selfish. We're prideful. Uh, We're angry. We're upset. And although you may have a little glimmer of goodness that comes out of you every once in a while, we understand that we are messed up people. And God's word reveals that the way that we get made right is a right relationship with God. We will not see the rightness that we so desire unless we have a right relationship with God. We're separated from him. And the only way to be in a right relationship with him is through Jesus Christ. So no wonder people would die so that people could get this book into their hands. Why would somebody die standing on this book, believing in it? Because we know that this has the truth. It'll help somebody understand why their life is falling apart and what God can do to restore them. That's why somebody would give their life. I had lunch earlier this week with uh, my former leader in my life. And uh, he poured into me when I was in seventh and eighth grade. He was a rocket scientist. And um, about four years ago, he left to go to Zambia, Africa so that he could get this book to people that needed to hear it. Why would somebody leave a lucrative job, a comfortable lifestyle, and say, I gotta get this book into people's lives? Extremely intelligent, around a lot of intelligent people, and yet saying, this is the truth, and we gotta get it to people. Gotta get it to people. My question is, have you received it? Have you considered it? Right now, if you would say, I don't believe it, have you considered the evidence? Don't take my word for it. You go search for yourself. Look at both sides. Read both sides. Consider the evidence. If you have, are you reading it? Are you hearing from the Lord regularly? Because I promise you, those of you that are Christians, you may say, well, I'm good. I'm a Christian. God wants to offer you so much more And I'm not talking about materialistic things. I'm talking about a relationship. He wants to walk with you. He wants to communicate with you on a regular basis. Will you receive it? 